Hello, welcome to the July 11th, 2018 Nutritionist webinar. I'm Marianne Fessenden from AMTS and your English language host. This monthly webinar series is dedicated to providing technical talks from internationally recognized educators for listeners around the world. Paula Torillo from Cordoba, Argentina translates and hosts a Spanish language webinar. Tom Long from Hemingway in China will be hosting in Mandarin. There will be a question and answer period immediately following the presentation. Listeners can submit questions through me, Paula, or Tom. A complete recording of archived webinars, as well as a question and answer session for each, will be available on the AMTS website. For those of you who would listen to the presentations while driving, we have converted the videos into MP3 files that can be downloaded to your device for offline listening. This month, we are very pleased to host Dr. Marcia Endress, DVM and PhD from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Endress is a professor in the Department of Animal Science with an extension research appointment. Her research interests include dairy management, welfare, and behavior. She has studied how various housing and management systems can influence health, welfare, and the performance of dairy cattle. In recent years, Dr. Endress has conducted research and outreach on precision dairy technologies, including robotic milking systems, automated milk feeders, and individual cow behavior sensors. She has published numerous peer-reviewed articles, abstracts, proceedings, and popular press articles, in addition to five book chapters. She teaches two classes in dairy herd management and coaches the University of Minnesota Dairy Challenge team. Dr. Endress chaired and organized U.S. Precision Dairy Conferences and serves as the chair of the International Precision Dairy Farming Association. In addition, Dr. Endress currently serves as president of the Dairy Cattle Welfare Council. Dr. Endress received her Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota, her master's from Iowa State University, and veterinary medicine degree from the University of Paraná, Brazil. So thank you, Marcia, for joining us. I'm looking forward to your presentation. We are especially excited that you are the first nutritionist presenter who is presenting at two times. In striving to have a timely question and answer period for as many global times as possible, we are running the webinar at 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. For our audience, if you have questions during the presentation, please type them in the chat or the Q&A window. We will answer them at the end of the presentation. I'm now going to turn the presentation over to you, and I do want to say I had the great pleasure of meeting Marcia for the first time at the past ADSA conference, and I just want to warn anyone, don't get between her and ice cream. So Marcia, I am turning this over to you. We will have a great presentation. You are now in control. Thank you, Marianne, for that introduction. <laughs> and the ice cream. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, also thank you to AMTS for um, make, and all the sponsors for making this webinar series possible. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. And uh, as maybe some of you that might know me, um, I'm, I'm the type of presenter that likes to interact with the audience. Uh, I thank you for being out uh, listening uh, live or the recorded webinar, and I'm going to just imagine that you are in the room with me, and I'm looking at all your attentive faces and so on and so forth, because in reality, I'm looking at my computer screen, and 
that's a little unusual. But we'll do our best to have a good discussion at the end. I know people are joining us from all over the world, and that's exciting. Uh, we'll be talking about robotic milking today. And uh, robotic milking is relatively new technology in the U.S. compared to Europe. So some of you from Europe uh, probably have even a lot more experience than we do. So I'll be looking forward to some of the discussion at the end. I also like to acknowledge my co-author, Jim Sulfur, who is a dairy extension educator that has worked with me in a lot of our robotic milking projects here at the University of Minnesota. Okay. So I'm going to start my presentation with the take-home message for today. And the take-home message, it's management that makes milk. And this comes from a producer who participated in some of our robotic milking projects that we do here in Minnesota and Wisconsin. And the robots is the technology that we use to harvest the milk. But we still need to manage our cows, manage their environment, and manage the technology that robot needs to be uh, ma uh, no, maintained and uh, calibrated and, and fixed as needed. So again, the technology that we have cannot be just installed in the barn and forgot about. Uh, we can, we have to still be people that love cows, that work with them. So this is a technical message that I want to leave for you today. So why are producers in the U.S. adopting robots? So one of the first surveys we did, we did a couple of surveys in Minnesota and Wisconsin here. Those are the uh, two states that we've been focusing our research for robotic milking. Uh, the main reason producers mentioned for adoption of robotic technology is for labor management or labor flexibility. Uh, what they mean by this is that can, they can either milk more cows uh, with just family labor, or they probably need to have less employees to milk the same number of cows. They also have flexibility on their schedule. So things like now we have more, a better quality of life because we don't have to milk our cows at four in the morning and four in the evening. We can uh, go to our kids' games. We can um, just have more flexibility and which therefore improve our quality, quality of life, which is another major reason. In addition to that, some of our farms in Minnesota and Wisconsin moved to robots from tie stall barns. Um, a tie stall barn is, is very labor intensive. It's really hard on your knees and your back. So producers mention human health as one of the reasons they want to install robotic systems. In addition, um, many of these farms are very interested in having the latest technology, as we're going to see as we go towards the later in the presentation, there's so much information that we can uh, collect with using a robotic system. And, of course, these producers are the ones that like technology and they want to invest in this kind of system. Cow health was mentioned as a, at least a perception that because cows um, now are in a group but they voluntarily can go and get milked, maybe having uh, better uh, monitoring of their animals individually when they're in a group, could potentially lead to better cow health and the milking consistency. That machine is going to milk the cows the same way every day as long as that equipment is maintained and properly calibrated, etc. So that consistency was important for the producers. We have um, basically five manufacturers of um, robots, um, robotic milking systems in the U.S., uh, Lely is the predominant brand in the market, followed by De La Val, and those two are the two systems that, uh, because of the 
predominance in the in the region here were the two that were included in some of the research projects that we've done in the past. Uh, GEA or GIA also has a monobox uh, system that was in the market uh, last year, I believe. Uh, and both of these, Delta and GIA, also have a rotary robotic system, and so a fully automated rotary parlor that. Uh, I'm not going to be focusing as much on today because that is basically managed more similarly to a conventional parlor system. Uh, cows are brought into a holding pen and then they're milked. Um, the difference is that you're going to reduce labor by having less people uh, uh, working with the rotary parlor. Uh, the, other, the other two brands are the MS Galaxy by Isatech and the Bomatic Robotics. I want to make it clear as I start the presentation here a couple of things. One is that our talk today here is about box robots. So those are the robots where uh, systems where a cow comes into a milking station like a box to be milked voluntarily. And another thing I want to mention as I start this presentation is a disclaimer that I'll be mentioning, mentioning company names or showing pictures throughout this presentation or even sharing some slides that I, 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 was, that I borrowed from the companies. We're not endorsing a particular brand uh, of robotic system, neither us, authors, or the University of Minnesota. So I want to just make that clear. So this... I start already with a slide that I borrowed from Laylee to show you the different kind of information we can get when this cow goes into this box that you see here. Uh, she is, as you see, she's eating some concentrate. She's stepping on a scale here, and we can get a lot of information uh, every day about this cow. So it's listed here that the milk production of that cow, protein and fat uh, concentration, uh, milking speed, temperatures, somatic cell counts, robot visits, and the box times. Some of these measurements are um, optional, so not every farm is going to have them. In addition, we can get per quarter uh, how much each quarter produces, uh, milking times, conductivity, color, etc. We can get activity and rumination if the cows are wearing a sensor. Again, it's an optional feature. Um, we can have the feed intake, meaning the feed of the, the concentrate feed that's uh, provided, offered in the robot box, and we can also get body weights. So all these in information is very interesting to us because it can help us better manage this individual cow that's housed in a group. So that's very interesting. Some additional technology that's available um, is the VMS herd navigator that's part of the De La Valle system. They can provide actually information, more detailed information on progesterone levels in the milk, um, beta hydroxybutyrate in the milk, and lactate dehydrogenase. And again, those are some optional uh, technologies that can be included in your system. So what I'm going to spend most of my time today is to talk about things that over either by doing research projects, by talking with data producers and nutritionists, by making field observations, we, f we think are important things to keep in mind when we're looking at robotic systems and what makes it work. Um, I only have about an hour, so obviously it's not going to be super in-depth in a lot of details, but I'm hoping uh, I can bring home some key points to keep in mind when you're working with your clients or customers that have robotic systems, or if you ourselves are a producer with robotic system or interested in one, what are some things that are important to consider? And in our U.S. market, we uh, are different in Europe, especially before uh, Europe 
was out of the quota system. Uh, we're different than Canada that does have a quota system. Where we need to be very efficient here, we need to get a lot of production in our farms to pay our bills. And right now, of course, the way milk prices are, we cannot even do that. <laughs> very, very good. I hope we can get off the slow milk prices in the U.S. But we need to focus on milk per robot per day. So we want to optimize why we're maintaining cow comfort, cow health. We want to get as much milk per robot as we can. So we want to maximize milk per minute of box time. And this can be accomplished by uh, focusing on cow milking speed, the prep time, optimizing prep time and attach time, uh, make sure our machine settings are appropriate and that machine is maintained, and optimize the number of refusals. And what's a refusal? That's when a cow comes into the robot box and it's not time for her to be milked yet based on permission settings. She just got milked you know, a few hours back. So she is just going to walk through that box and not be milked. And especially reduce failures. Failures are much more uh, of an issue, I think, because that means a cow that is ready to be milked, it's time for her to be milked, but the machine cannot attach, either because of the cow you know, moving around or the, the laser or the, the camera could not find the teats. Uh, so the cow is kicked out of the robot box, but she did not get milked. So if you use a number of maybe 60 cows per robot as a, as a number that we tend to kind of use, um, every additional five seconds that we take to for each milking to technically is one less cow that we can milk a day. So it's very important to, again, optimize this time that the cows are in the robot box. So this, I'm sharing some goals of a farm that we work with, Chad uh, Kiefer's Kipline Holdings. So they have a farm in Minnesota, five robots, but also Chad works with, as a nutritionist for a lot of companies, excuse me, a lot of farms that have robots. And this is the goals for their farm, but the goals that he sees um, out working with, you know, 20 or 30 different, 30 different farms, how they should be managing their system. So we should have more than 2.8 milkings per cow per day. Those are successful milkings. We want to have less than five, five failed milkings per robot for the entire group, less than five failed milkings per robot per day. We want to have uh, a small number of fetch cows. This is in a free flow system. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, less than five or ten cows, ideally even less than that per robot per day. Again, that's production labor because, as we talked about earlier, producers want robots to reduce labor. And we want to have a production goal. We want to achieve more than 5,000 pounds or 2,300 kilograms of milk per robot per day. So these are some of our goals. Other things that we need to keep in mind as we think about robotic systems is that cows need to be trained to use the robot. So the very first time a robot is installed, it's quite difficult. Our producers told us that it takes a, usually at least three weeks for the cows to kind of learn how to really go around this and use the box effectively at three months before things are really good, if you will, um, especially because cows were already used to a different system before, either a tie stall or a parlor. Heifers uh, need to be trained uh, you know, for the very first time. That's usually a challenge even in the parlor, but also need to kind of train them to get to go to this box and be milked. Uh, maintenance and repair costs are something we need to keep in mind. It's, it's a machine that's milking a lot of cows. If you think about it, one unit is milking 60 cows about three times a day. So if you were to extrapolate that to a parlor, it would be a very, very uh, small parlor milking a lot of cows. So again, obviously, it's a piece of equipment that needs to be maintained and fixed, and there will be some costs to that. So fixing stuff on your own is something to consider, um, something that can help you do better uh, if you can learn to do those things. Um, 
alarms, uh, something to pay attention to because you don't want to uh, not pay attention and things can blow up and become a snowball effect, if you will, that if you don't get your cow's milk on time, you really get behind eight ball, it's really a problem. And the whole area of other health, you know, mastitis, prepping the others, uh, pulse dipping, etc., is an area that we'll be talking a little bit more about later, but something to keep in mind. And you need to singe the others because if you don't, you're not sure getting in trouble in terms of um, finding the teeth, etc. And fetching cows, again, as I mentioned earlier, we need to optimize that. We don't want to not fetch them. Actually, producers, when we talk with them, they did not mind the fact that they had to go in the barn to fetch cows because cows become very calm and they easily can uh, be moved to uh, an area where they go into the robot and using a simple system of gates. And producers didn't seem to think that this was a major chore. Um, sorry, I forgot I have to stay on the top. And... Um, Excellent feeding management is a very important aspect of milking with robots. And since this is a nutritionist um, webinar, I might spend a little bit of time uh, focusing more on the nutrition aspects of robotic systems. Uh, just to kind of tell a story, just to bring the point home, um, one of the producers I spoke at one of our nutrition, excuse me, one of our precision dairy conferences, uh, producer from Pennsylvania, um, when he started with robotic systems, uh, he was on it for a, maybe quite a, few months at least, maybe a year, and uh, production was only 65 pounds per cow, which is, of course, not sufficient to be able to cash flow. So what all he did, he changed nutritionists, and he got a different nutritionist that started formulating the diets differently for him, and production went up to 85 pounds. So that's a huge difference in production because of the feeding management. And feeding cows and robots is, takes a little bit of a, an art uh, if you will, not just science, I guess, because it's it's different than feeding cows in a conventional uh, parlor system. Nutritionists, we did a survey with nutritionists, and uh, they told us that two things they think are very important within uh, the area uh, of feeding management. One is the, the, the management of the feed, the mixed ration that's in the bunk. That's a very important. Um, and then the second was the palatability of that pallet and quality of that pallet. And Producers need to work with nutritionists that like the challenge of working with robots because, as I said, it's a bit different than a conventional power system. Because for the robotic system to be successful, we need to entice the cows to visit the milking station or box. You might, I might be referring to the, those things. Uh, most of the time I call it a box. That's what I mean. Is that milking station you see on the picture. So the cow is coming out of that box, and she just got milk. So we need, we need to balance... Uh, what's the nutrients that are on the partial mixed ration, the partial mixed rations, what's in the feed bunk that the cows eat, that's where the forages are, that's kind of like your TMR. But the, that TMR does not have all the ingredients because you want to be able to feed some concentrate in the box, and that's what's going to attract those cows to the box to have some candy there, if you will, some very palatable uh, concentrate. And if it was me that you're trying to get to that robot box, you probably feed uh, some dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate. Or ice cream. <laughs> so, uh, before we move on to the discussion on nutrition, I want to briefly mention here that there's two ways we can have the cow traffic in a robotic farm. We can have what's called free flow or a guided flow. So, a free flow system, basically, if you look at this diagram, a cow can go to any area of the pen that she wants to go to. So if she's lying down in the stalls, you see on the diagram here, it's just a little white area here. Um, 
she can get up and she's hungry. She goes to the feed bank, which is number 12 here, 11, goes to the feed lane, and uh, she eats, and then she can go back and lie down. Or she feels like she wants to get some candy, some concentrate from the robot, so she goes into the robot, and then she gets milked, and so on and so forth. So it's a free flow. She can go anywhere um, she pleases to some extent. So then the guided flow system, and the one that we think based on our observations um, in the field here in, in the Midwest, is the milk first guided flow system. It's the one that works best. So again, looking at this diagram, we see the diagram here showing the, what the, would be the stalls. And then let's say the cow is hungry and she wants to go to the feed bunk to eat the partial mix ration. So before she can do that, she's going to go to a pre-selection gate. So the pre-selection gate is going to detect if it's time for her to be milked. If it is, she's going to be uh, guided to this commitment pan by the robot, and then she will get milked. And once she gets milked, uh, she can go out. And the system we like is the one that guides the cow directly from the exit of the robot to the feed lane, and then she can go and get the partial mixed ration. Um, so... This system, what it does for you, is going to reduce the number of fetch cows because the selection gate is already pre-selecting the cows for you, if you will, versus in the free flow, the robot box itself is kind of the selection system. Because I, like I mentioned earlier in the presentation, if it's not time for a cow to be milked, she's going to go to the robot, and the robot's just going to open the door again, and she gets out. So that's a refusal. The cow did not get milked. Uh, so just different ways of doing things. Both systems can work can work well. We have farms averaging over 90 pounds of milk in both systems in our studies. So both systems can work. And it's more of a producer philosophy, if you will, or preference, I guess. Uh, this is a picture of an example of a uh, guided flow milk first uh, farm, or you see here the, the, the cows are in this commitment pen area, so they got diverted here uh, by the selection gate, and they're waiting to be milked and then they're going to get out on the extreme right side of the picture here. You see the, the exit lane, if you will, with, with the uh, most of the farms will have maybe a uh, foot bath right in there, and then they get out to the feed, uh, feed bunk area. Uh, so this is a system that we've seen working well, too. Um, uh, some research uh, done by, I think it was done in Wisconsin, uh, showed that free flow farms produce more milk than guided flow, but we've seen also Research done in Europe showing the opposite. So I guess, like I said, uh, either can work, I think. Uh, so the idea is to entice those cows to visit the milk station regularly and frequently, especially in early lactation. So we're going to do this by having an adequately balanced partial mix ration that's fed at the bunk. Feed the additional concentrate at the milk station as required by the stage of lactation and milk production of that cow. And then in the guide of flow system using selection gates, there are one-way gates, so the cow can only go in one direction, and that will help us move the cow um, to the milking box. What are some of the feeding factors that appear to affect milking frequency? One of them is um, related to type of concentrate we feed. So research has shown that pellets are better than a meal. Cow has a... Uh, limited amount of time in the box, usually about six, seven minutes in the box. So feeding a pallet, um, she can actually eat all of that. It will be less feed that's uh, left behind, refused. refused. Uh, so pallets work better than meals. Of course, with the uh, milk prices being very low in the U.S. today, uh, some people don't want to pay the additional cost of palletization. So we might 
things from more people feeding things that are like kind of like a meal or there might be uh, like a roasted soybean, something that's uh, less expensive. The pellets also for their higher quality, they will entice cows to come to robot more often and that high quality in this project uh, had to do, and this was done in, I believe it was in Canada, maybe it was in Europe, sorry, I can't remember for sure, but anyway, it was not one of our projects, but uh, the quality came from palatability, they had some molasses on that from the shear force, so it was a pallet that didn't break as easy. Um, that made the cow more uh, inclined to go to the box and eat this particular pallet compared to a pallet that was uh, less palatable, more easily breakable, etc. So that was important. A study done in Spain showed that uh, feeding more concentrate in the robot increased the visits for the cows that were voluntarily milked. You can see the cows that are not fetched uh, went from 2.4 milkings per day to 2.7 milkings per day. But cows that were uh, had to be fetched did not make a difference. So those cows usually have to be fetched for other reasons. They might be lame or they might just be a cow that just, I don't know, doesn't like going with to the robot, get used to being fetched, etc. So they didn't see a difference by feeding more robot pellets. And I'm sorry, I have it here in pounds. So we have to roughly divide it by 2.2 or so. It's like 3 kilos and versus maybe um, six, 7 kilos, whatever, in the robot. So that partial mixed ration is also important. And I wanted to share with you briefly some of the characteristics of that partial mixed ration with you. Uh, some of the uh, nutrients that you're going to find. Uh, their balance, of course, will be lower than uh, a typical uh, total mixed ration in a conventional herd because, again, we're feeding uh, pretty much all the forage in this, uh, in this uh, diet, so it'll be high in forage. And then we're supplementing the cows with the concentrate feed in the robot box according to their uh, production level and a stage of lactation. So you can see here the ranges. This is a study we did at the University of Minnesota. Um, and then a uh, study was done in Ontario. You can see this, the numbers are very similar in terms of the characteristics of the partial mixed ration. Uh, the NDF varying from 28 to 40. And again, the lower NDF here will be more the guided flow farms where they tend to feed a little bit more like a, a TMR type of diet versus the, the higher forage that to be more of the free, free flow farms. We are in the process now of uh, doing another study. The, the numbers I have here from studies we did back about uh, four years ago or so. We're doing another study this summer, uh, and the numbers, um, we have uh, preliminary numbers so far from about 28 farms that we've done up to now. Um, and again, very similar numbers again, so crude protein varying from 13.8 to 17.7, uh, the NEL from 0.67 to 0.76, and the NDF from 25.9 to 41. So again, very similar uh, results again, and at this, this time we're actually testing the TMR. We're getting samples of the TMR and then sending it to the laboratory to be tested. The previous study we did uh, based on a, uh, the formulation of the diet. So the particle size uh, study done in Canada showed that the particle size, especially the top, top, top screen, will be longer than uh, a typical TMR, which is expected because we're feeding more forage. And again, it's going to be a balance of feeding for maximum milk production and minimum fetch cows. So if you feed uh, a high forage, low energy, uh, partial mixed ration, this is going to drive the cows to the robot a little bit more because they might still be hungry, especially the early lactation cows. Um, 
And in this case, you might um, limit production because they're not getting as much maybe uh, nutrients as they need. Versus a high-energy PMR, we increase the late lactation, cold-unquote, lazy cows. That's what they call them on the study here done back uh, a while back already. But you can see here on the chart that as the percent of uh, energy increased in the partial mix ration, uh, the percent of cows that did not come to the robot that had to be fetched uh, went, went uh, substantially higher um, as much as 20% of the cows that had to be fetched. So in a, if you have a 60 cows as uh, like a number of, of cows per robot, so that means at least 12 cows had to be fetched every day. So, um, and if you feed too much concentrate uh, through this um, robot box, we might increase the risk of acidosis and lameness and create some off-feed problems. So we really need to find this balance. And it's like I said earlier, it's, it's harder to feed cows in robotic milking systems than it is to feed a cow in a conventional parlor system where we have all the nutrients the cow is going to eat is going to be in that total mix ration. So this is a bit more of a challenge. Um, but my experience has been, as I work with different nutritionists here in our region, that it has become a lot, um, I mean, they have had more experience with many farms. We have approximately in our region, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Northeast Iowa, whatever, we probably have three or four hundred three to four hundred farms with robots now. So more nutritionists have been involved working with robot farms and they have learned um, how to optimize and, and uh, feed cows better. The, the feeding strategies vary depending on the system. So if you look at our guided flow herds in our study, um, the guided flow farms uh, were feeding less concentrate in the box than free flow herds. You can see here the averages. And again, with the, with the guided flow, we have the selection gates is helping us bring the cows <coughs> to the robot area so we don't have to feed as much to entice them, but we still need to feed some so they get into the box. And most of the time, the nutritionists at the time were balancing the partial mix ration for less than what's their goal production for that group. So on average, 12 pounds or about 5.5 kilos less um, for the guided flow and uh, 20 pounds or about Know, 10 kilograms less than the amount that you want to produce for the free flow. And you can see here on the diagram how much more variability we had for the free flow farms, anywhere from 10 to 30 pounds, versus for the guided flow, we're more like a 9 to 13 um, variability. So a little more tight on uh, the difference between the what the cows are supposed to be getting for that group versus um, on the free flow where we have, uh, again, a different uh, philosophy, if you will, uh, depending if the producer doesn't mind fetching more cows, you might be feeding different amounts of concentrate in the box. So a typical free flow strategy for feeding cows, again, typical is in, in quotation marks here because there's no such a thing as typical. I mean, there's, there's differences in how people are feeding, but based on our observations and our information we collect in our studies, normally producers, we start feeding cows in the first uh, month of uh, lactation. Increasing that production, uh, we can have a feed table. Uh, the beauty of robots is that you can um, basically uh, create a feed table where you can vary the amount of concentrate you're feeding cows uh, according to stage of lactation or production level of the cow because, as you remember, milk production is measured every day. So you can theoretically more precisely feed your cows. So in a free flow herd, usually you're going to, again, you're trying to entice the cow to come to the box, so you're going to be feeding um, 
feed quite a bit and increasing that amount and then continue to lead the feed the scouts for high production the first 100 days of lactation. Then mid to late to mid to late lactation, we start to, again, continue to feed for milk production. Late lactation, start reducing that amount and lower that robot feed to encourage the cow to dry off. So we can kind of do a little bit an easier dry off, if we will. Um, I've seen examples for, uh, for a producer that um, shared a chart with me. So a cow was producing 95 pounds. Ten days later, by changing the feeding, she was down to 52 pounds. So that helps dry off those cows. And the heifers, uh, because they're still growing, you can kind of, again, um, set up the feed table to allow for their growth. So again, we can be very flexible in terms of how we feed cows, what we give in terms of concentrate to those cows. When we talk about guided full farms, more typically, they're going to be feeding less robot feed in the box. They'll be feeding them more similarly to a TMR, conventional herd, and a little bit of that robot feed is provided in the box to still entice the cows to visit the milking station, but often you're feeding less per visit. Um, on free flow farms, you can feed usually up to about three kilos per visit at high levels of production. And here you can see you're lowered, lower than that, maybe a one kilo. Um, and the robot feed amount that's fed per day is going to increase with increased milkings that you have, like say, in a relaxation. So cows will go to the robot more often and be milked more often, so they will get a little more feed, if that makes sense. This is a study, uh, preliminary results, I think, from my study in Canada, looking at um, comparing, um, basically, the sub what they came up with is that there's a substitution rate between uh, concentrate and the partial mixed ration. So for every kilogram per day that you increase the robot feed, they found that the intake of the partial mixed ration was decreased by 1.3 kilograms. So obviously, if the cows are getting more from the bunk, she's still going to probably excuse me, more concentrate from the robots, you probably will need to eat less of the TMR. What's interesting here, and again, I can't remember from the top of my head the uh, number of cows included on this study, but you can see that was a trend. If you look at the numerical uh, difference here in milk yield uh, of cows that were fed a high-energy um, partial mix ration with less concentrate fed in the robot, they were actually producing more milk, and they were going to the robot more often, which is interesting, I thought. Those are the cows maybe that are just going through that commitment pan more obvious. This is a guided flow system, not free flow. So that's been very important to keep in mind. Guided flow can't work maybe with less concentrate. Um, most of our farms, they have free flow. Uh, with high production, they actually feed more than that. So they get to feed more concentrate for the high production cows on a free flow system. So this research was done in a guided flow system. And again, looks like feeding a little bit less concentrate was more optimal because then the, the partial mix ration had more of the nutrients the cow needed because it's a higher energy mix ration. Okay. Uh, okay. This is a study done in Spain by Dr. Alex Bach showing that, uh, again, I think it was in the guided flow, as you increase the amount of concentrate allowance, you're going to have more residual feed. That's the feed that cows do not consume per day. So based on this research, uh, their group, has been recommended that we should limit the amount of concentrate fed in robots to four kilos per day, um, maybe most five. As you can see here, that line goes up substantially after five kilos here. But again, as I just said a moment ago, uh, in guided flow systems, probably that works better than in uh, free flow systems. And I, I do think we need to do even more research to figure this out. I think we're not, um, you know, we don't know exactly what's the best approach yet. I mean, like I said, we have very 
many herds successful, producing a lot of milk with very good cow health, and the, the amount of concentrate that, that's fed varies quite a bit. Then you might wonder about feed costs. So we're feeding this pellet, uh, the pelletized feed will cost more than uh, a meal, uh, so there's a cost to that. So a study done at Penn State by Hunt showed, Matt Hunt showed that the feed costs of robotic farms versus conventional uh, parlor farms and tie stalls is not different. There was no relationship uh, here uh, in terms of feed costs and milk production for those uh, two types of farms with the robot horse here being the ones in um, triangular yellow. They only had about at least nine herds or so. So again, doesn't make a difference. And if you talk with producers, what they kind of tell is that it's cheaper to feed the late lactation, lower-producing cows, and more expensive to feed the early lactation, higher-producing cows in a robotic system. Because the, the higher-production cow is going to be getting more of that concentrate feed that tends to be a little more expensive. And the late lactation cow does not need as much of that, and she's eating now a less expensive uh, partial mix ration that's high in forages. So again, that's kind of what the um, experience has been in the field, and maybe that's the reason why feed costs are not necessarily different. So what are the benefits from uh, being able to feed cows and robots? And again, that's come from Chad Kiefer. We'll not be over-conditioning cows because we are feeding them for what they need theoretically, so our lactation and high-producing cows will get more concentrate feed than cows that are late in lactation, and again, this is more um, applicable maybe to a free flow system. Uh, we are rewarding the high cows with the energy that they need, so a little more precisely feeding them. And cows can get to a positive energy balance a little bit quicker after calving and gain weight faster because we're feeding again to, to their level of production and to help them uh, with that concentrate feed in a robot. But Fresh cow management is key, um, and I think some of our successful herds um, also put a lot of emphasis on pre-fresh, make sure that those cows have very good heat abatement, good cow comfort, um, then maybe they're trained to go in on a robot, and then they come in and the transition cow um, in the robots, robotic system should be observed uh, daily and we should not, again, put a robot and forget about the cows. We need to really have people a lot like observing cows, working with the cows, checking the rumination activity data that you get from uh, the software. Most robotic farms have, you know, included that into their system. It's, again, it's an optional feature, but a lot of farms have them. And look at their manure like we do in a conventional farm, but pay attention. Make sure that the partial mix ration is very palatable, high forage quality. Make sure the cows feel like coming to the bunk and eating that. Again, you're depending on the cow to do more things voluntarily in a robotic system. Uh, that pallet also has to be very palatable. Uh, fetching cows as needed, so we don't want to not have them come into the robot uh, enough times to be milked. So paying close attention to that, maybe have a different permission setting for fresh cows so you're paying attention to them uh, because if they're sick, you need to kind of pay attention and take care of them sooner. And potentially feeding different types of feeds in the robot box could allow for more flexibility. Most of our farms, um, when we did our first studies, were feeding only one type of feed through the box. Most systems allow for up to four feeds to be fed through the robot, four different concentrate types of feed that you can have. Of course, you have to buy separate bins for it, so there's a cost. So most farmers will have only one feed, or more recently I've seen 
uh, having two feeds, one for high-producing or lactation cows and one more for the natural lactation cows. That's a bit cheaper. Uh, but theoretically, you could uh, maybe have a, a feed that's formulated for fresh cows, or you could have also, you also have the ability to spray liquids on the pellets. Um, so this is something, in my opinion at least, that needs a bit more research, how we can optimize feeding of these transition cows to help them transition even better in the robotic system. Consistency is very key. Again, you, depending on the cow to voluntarily go to the feed bunk and eat, voluntarily go to a robot to be, to be milked, etc. So that consistency, as we know, cows like consistency. So the dry matter of the PMR should be checked routinely and the ration adjusted for dry matter. Mixing and delivery should be well done to be very consistent. Push-ups, I'm going to see a slide later on where we're going to hopefully by the data we collected show you the importance of feed push-ups in robotic farms, especially where cows, again, come voluntarily to the bunk at different times throughout the day. Consistent and frequent fetching, um, although most of the farms, when I talk with them, they tell me that they prefer to fetch cows only twice a day so they don't disturb the animals as much. Um, it does not increase their labor. Um, so most of the time, producers might be going to to the to the barn fetching cows twice a day, but that varies. Some, some people do a little more often. Uh, high, highly palatable partial mix ration and high quality palatable uh, pellet is very important. So in terms of feeding management, some of the keys to successful feeding include the quality feeding management of the partial mix ration and the pellet quality of feeding table that you use. Feeding strategies probably are different for free flow and guided flow systems, and the feeding strategy also vary depending on the producer's goals. Uh, some producers want maximum milk, and they don't mind fetching cows. Others do not want to spend a lot of time or getting too many cows to be fetched. They want to have less time in the barn fetching animals, so we need to work with the producer and uh, balance that ration uh, accordingly. And again, focusing on consistency is very important. So I want to share with you now some, um, a little bit of the data we collected um, in our projects here in Minnesota, looking at factors that were associated with milk production in robotic systems. And why we're interested in milk production, this is a chart from a paper we published last year in Journal Dairy Science, and it's coming from uh, a tool that we put together that is a financial analysis that we have for comparing parlors with robots. And it showed us on this scenario, this scenario was uh, for 240 cows, uh, you know, four robots. So this is only for robot boxes. This is not for rotary parlors, um, automated rotary parlors. This is for robotic systems and boxes. We find that every, t every increase in, um, in um, about 500 pounds of milk, over 4,000 pounds, um, we obviously going to be increasing the net annual impact of that farm. So focusing on production of the robot, like I said earlier, is important. So what are some of the factors that we found that were associated with that? First, I want to share with you what, is the, what was the average production on the farms that we had. We had about 54 uh, farms of the study. On average production was about 4,300 pounds, of about 2,000 kilos. And um, in our recent study, uh, we see the same – I mean, we see an improvement, if you will, with new technology and maybe new management practices. We've seen an increase of about 500 pounds so far in the average production uh, per cow. But I, I want to warn you, this is preliminary. This is only based on um, 
data collected for the, the weekly average, um, and we will be getting data for the entire year uh, and summarizing all that. The average that I have on top is from 18 months of data collected every day from every cow on those farms. So those numbers um, will change potentially quite a bit um, as we go along here with our study. So the factors that we found were associated with milk production per robot. Uh, I only have some of them here. Um, the, the, the ones that had the highest estimate on the association with milk production. Uh, these, uh, this paper is just actually in press in the Journal of Dairy Science. It will be published pretty soon here. Actually, I forgot to check if it's already uh, available. Um, so we found that uh, milking visits per day, so successful milking, so the milking frequency, if you will, uh, was positively associated with milk per robot, and so was the milking speed, so how fast the cow milks. This is a multivariable model, so uh, we, we adjusted for those factors. They were all uh, stayed in the final model, if you will. Uh, number of cows per uh, robot box um, was also an important factor that was positively associated with milk yield. Uh, and the amount of feed that was offered in the robot, and these are all, I forgot to mention earlier, these are all free-flow farms. So if we feed more uh, concentrate in the robot, we also had a positive association with milk yield per, per unit and in free flow farms. And the fa factors that are negatively associated with milk yield per robot were the amount of residual feed, so the feed the cows did not consume that was offered but not consumed, uh, fail visits, and refuse visits. And just to give you an idea what uh, was the milking speed in our study, uh, it was 2.7 liters per minute. So that's how fast cows get milked. So milking time took about five and a half minutes on average. And then there's another minute or so, minute and a half, that it takes for prepping, attachment, and pull zipping. So to reduce the box time per cow, so to be very efficient and be able to get more milk per robot, so you have more cows going through the robot, we need to select for cows that milk and attach fast. So... Make sure that they're not you know, moving around a lot. And, uh, teat, you know, teats that are crossed uh, on the back, they're really hard for robots to find. So the, the cows that are selected for easy attachment are better. Um, the equipment has to be kept in very good condition because things are not working well. Um, obviously, you're going to reduce the number of animals that go through your robot. If equipment breaks down, if the robot is down, it's going to really become a snowball and you get in trouble. You're going to lose a lot of milk. It takes many days to recover from that. So really being on top of the equipment, checking it every day, more than once a day, make sure everything's working properly. Singeing the udders is important because um, if a lot of the hair is in the way, the, the laser or the camera that's trying to find the teats cannot find the teats. Um, actually, as a matter of fact, we were on a farm one time, and Jim and I, and uh, the cow had a lot of hair, a lot of hair in the udder. And there was a, some part of the hair that was... Um, it almost looked like a teeth because of so much hair. It was kind of wet. And the robot, um, the cup was going in and out, in and out. The robot arm was going, trying to find and attach to that hair. So it was trying to actually get to that hair. And of course, no milk is going to come out of hair. So very important to do this. And also trim the tail switches so they're not in the way of the, the laser or the camera or whatever is being used in that system to find the teeth. A major factor that affects high milk yield per robot, obviously, is high milk yield per cow. There's a high, uh, you know, association between the two. So we did the analysis uh, separately for milk yield per robot and milk yield per cow. And when we look at milk yield per cow, some of the factors we found are similar. Um, 
milking speed, milking visits per day, the robot feed that's offered, uh, were all positively associated with milk yield per cow. And the amount of residual feed, the number of failed visits and refused visits to the robot were negatively associated with uh, milk yield per cow. In addition, as you look at more at a farm level uh, management factors, we found the cow comfort index, which is basically a measurement that we use to look at the comfort of the stalls. It's calculated by dividing the number of cows that are lying down in the stalls by all cows that are touching a stall, either standing or lying down or perching, which is two feet on the stall and two feet in the alley. So this number we like to have around 80%. 0.8, and the higher this number, the more milk that farm produced. So again, comes back to what we've known all along, that cow comfort is an important aspect of milk production, and it's turned out to be also important in robotic farms, and it could be a nice measurement to look at if you go to a farm and look at cow comfort index, give you a gauge of the potential for productivity in that farm. So high production per cow can be achieved by increased visits in early lactation, by having an excellent transition cow program that includes the pre-fresh and post-fresh cow to result in higher peak milk yields, uh, well-balanced diets, both the partial mixed ration and the robot pellets, and optimal reproductive performance, uh, especially today where BST is no longer allowed in our area, both in Minnesota and Wisconsin. We actually were on a robotic farm recently that Prior to BST coming out, they were averaging about 102 pounds per cow. Now they are down to about 90 or 88 pounds per cow. So reproduction performance becomes very key to have cows that have you know, heard to have lower days in milk and producing, therefore producing more milk. So those become even more important today. Another aspect we looked at uh, was feed push-up. Um, there was some limited research on that um, in conventional herds, and we want to see what like I said earlier, cows might be eating at different times in robotic farms. And we did find that this was one factor, a farm-level factor, that was associated with both milk per robot and milk yield per cow. So we're looking at difference of about 11 pounds of milk uh, more, comparing the automatic feed push-up that you saw the picture in the previous slide with the manual feed push-up. And again, this is done in uh, 33 free-flow cow traffic herds. Um, so again, pushing up feed because... We need to make sure that the cow has access to that partial mix ration. That partial mix ration is what's meeting most of her requirements, uh, definitely meeting all of her requirements for maintenance, and most of the requirements pretty much laid in lactation that concentrate feed is just, again, adding a little bit more for the high-production cow. But we need to make sure that they get to the feed bunk. And by getting to the feed bunk, she's up, and she also more likely then to go also through the robot. So important to have uh, pushing up feed, um, even maybe more crucial than conventional herds, but I'm of the opinion that pushing up feed is important um, in all farms with, uh, no f with a feed bunk, feeding a, a mixed ration of feed bunk. Another thing that we started looking at is um, producers would uh, mention to us that it looks to me that my heifers don't do as well as my cows do, and that could be something to do with, you know, getting used to the robot, et cetera, et cetera. So like I said, we had this data set. We have... Um, year and a half of data, and this particular analysis did include, uh, I believe it was nine herds that have guided flow also. And we want to compare the primiparous cows versus the cows in robotic systems. And we found that the primiparous cows, if you look at milking frequency, 
which we have just mentioned is a very important aspect to achieve milk production uh, on robotic farms. We see that the permipar scows did not equal the milking frequency of the multipar scows until about seven months in lactation. So the first four bars are the first four weeks in lactation. We decided to do that separately because we're curious to see how fast cows were increasing their milk uh, frequency. And the other uh, five through 13 here are months of lactation. And you can see it took about until the seventh month or so before the permipar scows um, reached a similar uh, level of milk production as the chipper scows, and then they surpassed it. But again, that's taking a little bit too long, so it looks like those cows might be lagging behind the multiple scows. And if you look at here and look at the basic lactation curve, if you will, from uh, the you know, first week to, uh, again, the 10th the month lactation here, you, you can create a, an estimated peak ratio, which is the peak of production of primipers compared to multiples. Um Targeted industries is usually around 0.78. And you can see here in the three flow farms, the peak ratio is more like 0.74. So maybe giving us an indication that the permipar scows are actually lagging behind the multiple scows a little more than you would like to. And the same thing uh, we saw on the data flow farms, and here even worse uh, with the peak ratio of 0.71. And I want to warn you that this data set here did include um, some farms that were using what's called the feed-first gutted flow uh, system, I think about 30% per of them or 35% of them. And the feed-first system, based on our observations, the producer's observations, does not work very well for our U.S. market. Um, so it's something that's being kind of abandoned uh, because a cow that goes first to the feed bunk then goes to the commitment pan, she might just be standing on that commitment pan, commitment pan chewing her cud and not really going to the robot. So the milk first option for guided flow uh, appears to to work better, and this data set here combined the two, um, so that could be why it got a little bit worse actually than the free flow farms. So a question that uh, was brought up to us too is like, should we use the pre-fresh feeders that we see here on the on the right of the picture? You see there's a feeder. Uh, cows can go into this concentrate feeder to get concentrate pellets, and this is installed in the pre-fresh pen. So cows can get used to it, uh, heifers can get used to it and before they go into a robot. Or you can actually train the heifers to the robot uh, prior to calving by bringing them, physically bringing them to the robot and make them walk through the robot uh, to get some pellet in it. And, and just it's a way you can do that maybe twice a day to train them. So the question is, will this improve their performance? Will that increase the number of robot visits? And is it worth the cost of labor and how much time should be spending doing that? So we did a little case study um, with the farm here that decided that they could train their heifers. Um, we presented this at their uh, science meetings uh, uh, last month. So this is just a case study. There's not a lot of uh, comparison, if you will, here. But we found that the milking frequency uh, of the cows, uh, if they train them, so this is trained by actually bringing the heifers into the box twice a day, so they had a, a bedded pack um, area within the barn, within the milking barn, where they brought their heifers two weeks prior to calving, uh, predicted calving date, and they would then make them walk through the robot, get about a kilo of a concentrated robot box, and then go back to their pen uh, and do this twice a day. So if you look at here, you can see that at every stage of lactation, I, I didn't include all the way down to 300, but 
up to 210 days here. You can see that every stage of lactation, there was a significant difference between cows that were trained compared to cows that were not trained. So again, this can be an approach. Not every farm, of course, is going to be willing to do this because it does take extra labor, extra space in the barn, etc. But then if you look also the, at the milking frequency compared to before and after compared to the multiple cows, and if you remember, I showed you the data from our previous study that involves the uh, all the farms and it has the um, sorry about that. It has all the farms for 18 months. And we saw that it took about two months seven of lactation before heifers were able to have the same milking frequency as the multiple cows. You can see here that between 30 and 60 days of milk, those heifers that were trained already were able to get to the same milking frequency as multiple cows. And I don't have I don't have the graph here, but we did see a difference, obviously, in milk production on these heifers. Uh, but this is a difference from year to year, so I, like I said, I, I'm cautioning you that this is just a case study. Uh, production was much higher on the heifers on the second year where they were trained uh, by about, uh, if correctly, like 10 pounds. So that did make a difference in production, So which might pay for that extra cost and extra labor. So I was trained as a veterinarian, so I don't want to leave health out at all. So I'm going to just bring a few points related to cow health and some of the aspects related to uh, other health, especially uh, on, on robotic systems. So there's some advantages of a robotic system because we're milking uh, each quarter individually. So that machine, once the cow is done, that quarter detaches, so we're not over-milking cows. And, um, of course, if a cow is treated, it can enter that information in the robot software, and then the robot will know uh, that cow was treated, and then it, that the milk does not go in the tank. So just takes you working with the robot system and it makes sure that's uh, taken care of. There's some challenges, and then this is based on some research and some observations. Uh, some research has shown that prepping sometimes is not as uh, accurate. Uh, that some teeth are missed, for example, uh, and you need to be on top of the equipment to make sure that every, everything is disinfected, it's cleaned well, etc. Pulse dipping sometimes, cows get missed. Um, it's a little harder to identify cases of mastitis because now uh, you're not, you know, force stripping cows in the parlor and looking for clots and flakes and blood, etc. Although I could argue that a lot of humans miss that too. Anyway, uh, and then treating clinical mastitis cases. So some farmers are well set up to have a separate area where they can go and treat the cows. Some just do it in a robot, but again, offers a few more challenges. Dirty cows, research has shown that dirty cows um, do have a higher somatic cell count in general. Farms with uh, cows that have a higher hygiene score that are dirty are going to have higher somatic cell counts. So ideally, you want to manage, again, that barn really well, keep cows clean as much as possible. And then the milking interval um, can be a challenge. Um, if it's too long, if the cow had milk on her for too long, how you set that up can be a challenge. And then we said earlier failures, a cow that was supposed to be milked but did not get milked because the machine could not attach the units and just kick it out of the box but not milked. Obviously, there's a lot of milk left in that other and that could be a, obviously a problem. Uh, this is just a picture to show you the different ways cows are prepped. Uh, the picture on top is the DGIA or the GIA um, monobox uh, robot. And also, that's the same system that's used in the rotary uh, robot. So the, the, 
cup, you see here the teat cup, it preps and then gets rid of the disinfectant and the pre-milk and then milks and then also pulls dips. So once the, the teat is attached to that, uh, excuse me, once the, the milking unit is attached to that teat, it does all the work, if you will. The one on the right is the system of brushes. Um, that is uh, the Laley system. So the brushes will go under the cow and, and uh, clean it. And some farms do a, a double brushing, if you will, that do a couple of times to clean the teats. And the one on the, the left of your screen, that will be a teat cup that's used for prepping. And the prepping cup is uh, used for the Delaval, the AMS Galaxy, and the Pomatic Robotic Systems. So they, they, um, the, that teat cup is just used to, to clean the teeth, and then it goes out of the way, uh, and then the milking cups get attached. Just to give you an idea of different ways, they all probably can work well, and they have to all be managed properly. Uh, I also want to give you some quick examples of what you get in terms of information uh, from the software that can help you manage, manage um, milk quality or health. This is a normal cow, for example, from one of the systems, and this is a cow that obviously had a lot of issues. You can see how much difference that is in her conductivity over time. There's a lot of variation, a lot of changes. Obviously, this is a cow that needs to be checked uh, and most likely has mastitis. Here, uh, if you see on the screen, you're going to have these uh, zone that's kind of pink. That's your zone of concern, if you will. You might have a, one spike like you see on the left. That's really not a need for concern. But if you look at the one on the right, uh, the bottom right, you can see how many more variability, how much more variability that is, and how much um, is on the zone on the area that's considered out of control, that statistical problem. So most likely this cow is the one that you want to check because she might have, uh, she might have problems. Uh, and then she goes into a list. And that list, attention list, pretty much all the different uh, robotic softwares in the market can provide you with an attention list every morning that you can go and check those cows more closely, and you can set what are the parameters that you want the computer to look for and to bring this cow to the list. This is another example of a, another way that this list is available to you. This is the uh, health report. You can see the cow on the top here that I have highlighted in yellow. She has a 96% chance of being sick, and this is based on different changes that happened to her in the last 24 hours that leads you to think this cow is in trouble, so I'm going to go and check her. So every morning, producers will, every morning, every afternoon, the producers will look at some of these reports and then go and look at the cows. And I think we still need to also look at the cows, even in spite of the information, uh, be on top of things and observe cows and the barn and, and still like cows and be there with them. Somatic cell count report not available in the U.S. yet. Uh, both uh, Lele de Laval and No have it. I, think, I believe Gia might have it too. Uh, somatic cell count report would be nice to have. It's not approved by the PMO yet. Uh, in the U.S., we have some test farms. That's what this, uh, this report comes from. So, again, you can set up uh, what kind of uh, somatic cell count limit you want to have before the cow gets on the list uh, as having mastitis or having problems. And you can CMT that cow and you can double check or culture it, whatever, and then follow your protocol. Sometimes finding a cow in the barn um, can be a little bit of a challenge. You have a lot of, you uh, know, if you have two robots, you have 120, 140 cows in the group, or uh, three robots, even more, like 180 cows. So this is a system I saw in Europe a couple years ago that is a cow location system. system. There, there's more than one in the market. So each one of these green dots is a cow. So if you need to find a particular cow to do something, you know, she needs to be fat, she needs to be whatever, uh, very easy to find because you can just type her number and then the 
the location where she is going to show up. Is she at the stalls? Is she at the feed bunk? And it's within you know, 20 centimeters. It's really close or whatever. So it's kind of a, a nice tool, of course, at additional cost that can be used by farms. This is a study done at Penn State to look at within nine herds. They had nine herds that uh, they looked at that have uh, robotic milking systems. Just to give you a little bit of an idea, what are, what are the ranges we see in terms of milk quality? Uh, so the the average farms are a little bit above what we want to have, you no know, less than 200,000, but the best farms are able to achieve very good numbers in terms of milk quality, as you can see here on the slide. Uh, however, there are farms that are obviously struggling, as you can see here on the high numbers. Um, these farms obviously need to do some improvement on uh, all these uh, characteristics here to, to have good other health and milk quality. just want to share this. So, you know, we haven't done as much research within our group here on milk quality. I think this is an area we'd like to do more research in the future. Uh, I asked some of the companies, and I got this shared to me by a te the technical uh, service uh, director or manager for Lely. So one somatic cell count or clinical mastitis rate is high. How are we going to troubleshoot and solve problems on the farm? So like any system, I think we need to start with the basics. So completely check up of that equipment, the robot itself, the pipeline, the tank wash, make sure the chemicals are being used appropriately in terms of what chemicals are being used and, and the amounts, etc. Um, and then, of course, also look at the animal, the animal, their environment, and all the management factors involved to, to see that the cows are clean, the, the, you know, we're scraping alleys, we have good bedding, clean bedding, etc., uh, good transition cow program, etc. So we need to look at the whole thing, and it's kind of a holistic approach, and it should resolve most of the quality issues on the farm. And one thing you want to avoid is failures. This study was done by Lily, that's why I borrowed the slide from them, but they did a study looking at the relationship between number of failures, again, failures of a cow that should be milked but did not get attached and got out of the robot. You can see that there's a very strong, it was a significant association with the somatic cell count on the farm. So we want to limit number of failures per robot per day. The best farms are getting less than uh, two or one and a half failures per day. So in summary, the keys to successful feeding include the quality and feeding management of the parcel mixed ration, uh, the pellet quality at the feeding table, that's uh, according to stage of lactation and level of production. Uh, the feeding strategy will vary depending on the producer's goals. Cow observation and management are critical. Very still very critical. And a robotic system requires excellent overall management to be successful. I want to thank or acknowledge the dairy producers that have participated in many of our studies. Justin Seward is my grad student who summarized the data uh, that I presented to you. Some other students have helped with the data collection. Leyland de Laval helped us with uh, developing the, the way to collect data from the databases, from the farms to, to uh, evaluate. And I want to leave you again with a um, take-home message that we got from one of their producers. We, we like his quote here that we still need to do top-notch management to make things work on robotic farms. We cannot forget about the cows. And to finalize, I want to invite you all uh, to participate next year and continue our discussion on technology, robotic milking, feeders, sensors, etc., at the International Precision Dairy Farming Conference that we'll be hosting in Rochester, Minnesota, uh, June of 2019. And thank you so much for your attention. Uh, or for listening to the recorded webinar. Thank you again to AMTS and to all the sponsors for making this webinar series possible. And thank you, Marianne.
talk about our next webinar. Heidi Rossell will be joining us. She's an associate, associate professor of ruminant nutrition with UC Davis Veterinary School, located in the Veterinary Medicine Teaching and Research Center in Tulare, California. Her areas of research are computer modeling of nutrient metabolism and systems analysis of dairy feed management and production, including developing models to evaluate cow performance and feeding consistency. Heidi will be talking about manure management on August 8th, and there will be two opportunities again to join at 9 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time and 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And since Heidi is out in California, that 9 a.m. one is going to be pretty early for her. One of the other webinars that we have going is the Beef Nutritionist webinar. We run that um, on the same day as the regular webinars, except for the August 15th one. We've had two already. We started um, in May, and we are following up with a webinar in August by Dr. Danny Fox. He is a professor emeritus of, from Cornell University, and he's going to speak on factors affecting performance of growing beef cattle on August 15th. Dr. Jonas Sartori from Texas Tech will speak on September 12th, and we'll finish up the year on October 10th with Dr. Nicholas DiLorenzo from the University of Florida. Our beef webinars will be presented in English and Spanish with Paula Torillo co-hosting from Argentina. We're thankful for our series sponsors, um, AMTS obviously runs it. AB Vista sponsors the beef webinar. For the um, Argentinian webinar, Paula is sponsored by Rock River Lab and Bio4. The beef nutritionist webinars are held at 1 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time with a varying schedule. If you're interested, please email webinars at agmodelsystems.com. And finally, with the talking that I have to do, I want to thank our co-hosts and the people who help make this possible. Um, first of all, AMTS, USA and Global. And this morning, for the first time, we're joined by Dr. Elena Bonfante from Dairy Innovations in Italia, and I know she has some questions. Um, this afternoon, the event, we will be joined by Paula Torillo in Argentina, and she issues a special thank you to Rock River Laboratory for sponsoring the Spanish language webinar. And Tom Long from Hemingway in China. Here in the U.S., we are grateful for the generous sponsors who have helped make this possible. Our gold sponsors are Ajinomoto Heartland, Superior Nutrition through Amino Acids, makers of Agipro L and Arm & Hammer Animal Health, makers of Cattle Feed Ingredients that Optimize Dairy Cow Health. Our silver sponsors are Dairyland Laboratories, Virtus, makers of Strata with EPA and DHA omega-3s, and Prequil with omega-6s, Cumberland Valley Analytical Services, Kemen, featuring USA Lysine, Dairy One Forage Laboratory, R&D Life Sciences, and AB Vista. Our bronze sponsors are AminoMax, Purdue Agribusiness, Jeffo, Quality Feeds, Adiseo, Origination Inc., and Novita, makers of Nova Meal. I'm now going to open the question, open the floor for questions. We're going to have some questions from Elena and some questions from me. If you have any questions, and thank you for hanging with us on this first um, 
full of, of error type webinar. Um, if you have any questions, go ahead and type them either in the chat window and I'll see them or in the question and answer window. Questions for you. I have, I'm going to start out with a question before we go to some of the questions from Elena. Um, I have a question from um, Kirby Kronstadt. He asks, do certain protein sources work better in the robot, like um, dry distiller grains compared to other protein sources? And it has a second second part. How do DDGS perform in robot systems as the pellet in the robot? So I'm not aware of any research that actually compare that. Um, as we know, DDGS is very palatable. Uh, actually, I tried it myself. <laughs> Couldn't say that, but one of the few feeds I tried in my life was the DGS and roasted soybeans. They're actually tasty. But anyway, uh, so I would think the palatability is good. Um, most of the time, they're not included in the palate, to my knowledge, but definitely on in the TMR, it's pretty common in the Midwest to have the DGS. Unfortunately, since I don't have any research to back me up, I don't want to speak about any. You know, if it's better or worse or otherwise. Um, from intuition, I would think that would be a good source of uh, of protein for the cow because of palatability. I'm sorry about that. I don't have any research on it. To no, thank rely you. Rely on, yeah. Um, I have a couple questions that I'll get to next that are from Elena, um, but I have an excellent question, and this this sort of addressed something that I heard um, that we were discussing, or I think maybe you presented on, and we. Kind of want to tackle in a in a quest in a presentation next year. Um, this is from Elena in Italy, and she says, with the primaparis milking frequency, as it reaches the same value for the pluriparis after two months of lactation, how would that differ? Or do you have any information on whether they had been on robots since calving, or if these were cows that are were new to a robotic system entirely? Or trained, would it, I'm sorry, I misinterpreted that. Would it work better if they were trained before calving? Are you talking about the heifers? Yeah. So um, the heifers pre, were actually, calving. yeah, the heifers were trained before calving. On the okay. Day, on the data that I showed, the preliminary case study data, those heifers were trained pre-calving. So they brought them into the barn about two weeks prior to calving, and then they run them through the robot. They feed them pellets, but they don't milk them, obviously. And so that's how they're training them. It's the only farm I know that's actually doing this. I have a few farms that do the, the feeder, the concentrate feeder in the pre-fresh pen that you saw in that picture that had the little cage. You can kind of actually close the cow, and then she feels like she's in a little box also eating concentrate. And those systems are a little more common, but again, they cost, I think, $2,500, so a lot of producers do not have them. Um, so those are the two options that I've seen, either actually putting them in the barn and bringing, bring them through the robot before calving, or feeding the pre-fresh uh, concentrate in the pre-fresh pan before calving for, for close-ups. Those are the two ways people are training them. Um, do you have any, any information that compares animals that have experienced robots since they were calves, like for example, they were in a robotic milking feeding system and then they moved through their lives. Do, is there any research that's been done on it that? Is, no, there's no research. There's only like observations from producers I talk to. <laughs> so a lot of our producers here that have robots 
and say a lot, but some of them have both. And since they, you know, since the time they installed the calf feeders, and then those heifers now became cows and came into the robot. Their impression was, again, this is all observation from the producers, that now they actually adapt faster. However, you need to keep in mind those producers have been using robots for longer, too, so probably they themselves have learned how to better manage the robots. So it's really hard to prove the point that feeding them in, you know, with the calf, you know, the milk feeders will make them more um, adaptable, if you will, to, to the milking uh, robot. Um, it's a common sense thing that would indicate that should be the case, but I don't think uh, research has been done. And it would be very difficult, to be honest, difficult research to do because you would have to have a, enough number of animals that are you know, raised individually in a hutch, then have another group that's in feeders, and then follow these animals for two, you know, two years before they calve again, I mean, before they calve, to be able to get the data. So it's kind of a tough project. I'd love to do it. <laughs> But I don't know how, how I could do it because I'm very interested in behavior, too, and how animals are trained and all that. And we do a lot of research with uh, the milk feeders, too, here in our labs, I mean, our group here. But we we haven't been able to really compare because that would be a study that would be kind of hard to do, I think. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. you say, it would be really hard to control the variables, but um, right. it may be right. something that we just have to say. This makes sense. <laughs> right. It does make sense. And it's based on the observation of producers that I work with. You know, there's some producers who work over and over here in different projects. And that's what they tell me. You know, much. I know I have one lady. She's really good to work with. She, they have, you know, four robots. They've had it for a while. And they also have feeders. So she's been on both of my projects. And she goes, you know, much I've noticed. One of my first set of animals that I had in the feeder, and the calf feeder came into the barn. They're so much easier to train now. And this is a high-producing farm. They usually have 95 to 100 pounds of milk. They do very well. And uh, she, she feels that she's gotten better over the years because the calves now come from being in the feeder. But who knows? This is just observation. Yeah. It's just a common sense thing, but I don't know. Yes, yes. Um, let's see. So I have a question that actually comes from two of our sources. So um, this was asked by Elena earlier and also by Don Andrus. He says, is there, um, does pellet, is there an ideal pellet size that works best with the system, and is there a maximum or minimum size in diameter and length? Uh, I'm trying to think from the top of my head if I have seen any research. Most of the research I've seen had more to do with the shear force, you know, how, how hard they are in terms of not breaking. Mm -hmm. I, I would need to search if anybody has done research on the size of the pellet. Mm, don't yeah. think so that I can remember. I don't know how important that would necessarily be uh, in terms of, you know, it does, you know, a smaller size probably would be a little easier for the cow to, you know, grasp. But no, she has only a few minutes right. to, to eat that pellet. And again, we're not feeding a lot at a time but she needs to be able to consume. And so if she's not able to consume and she gets out of the box, then we have the refuse feed that she did not consume. And we all saw that refuse feed is one of the factors associated with milk production. So um, if, if she cannot eat it quickly enough. So maybe that's uh, another area that we need to do more research on. There's so many aspects of robotic systems that very limited research has been done, especially in our U.S. setting here. Um, I think the size of the pallet varies. I'm trying to think what I see on farms. It varies somewhat, but not substantially. And also some people are feeding, you know, like roasted soybeans, things like that, that are like, uh, you know, 
something that's not really a pellet, but it has this, or corn gluten pellets, I've seen fat also, that tend to be a little bit larger. Um, no, I don't have any anything that I can think of. I can do a little bit of searching, Marianne, see if it's anything done in Europe that I missed, okay. uh, and I can send it to you. So maybe you could uh, yes. forward to him if I find anything. Yes, and I'll share that with um, with our group. Okay. Um, I have one more question right now, and then um, and then unless I see more questions either from Elena or from um, anybody else on the on the line, I will say that this is our good for our morning one. So um, my next question also comes from Elena in Italy. Um, she said the pellet composition. Do you have a comparison between the use of a starch versus a fiber product, like highly fermentable fiber, um, like soy holes or beet pulp? Right. There was a study done in Israel. I won't have it in front of me here, but there was a comparison between one that was more of a starchy type of pellet and one that had more like soy holes and things like that. So they compared the two, and they actually didn't see a difference in either you know, consumption or production or milking frequency in that study. They both worked. Um, and that's the only study that comes to the top of my head was by, um, let me see here if I can open it quickly. I probably will not be able to open it quickly here, but I can again send that to you. So there was no difference in terms of um, the, those two ingredients, a highly digestible fiber, if you will, and a starchy type of pellet. They both worked in that study. So, again, I can send you maybe a slide or something on that, too, for you to, to share later. Excellent. Um, yeah, now, do you have, any, do you have a, an idea of what country has the most use of robots in milking? Uh, I would say the Netherlands. Um, I mean, kind of started there, <laughs> if you will. So, Netherlands, quite high. Um, a lot of the Scandinavian countries have a lot of robotic systems, too. Um, that's kind of majority. Uh, Europe, of course, a lot more than here. Uh, it's estimated that we have approximately 40,000 robot units in the world now, uh, if you talk about box units. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the U.S., uh, like I said, in our area, we probably have about three to 400 farms, that not units, but farms. The largest size we have here in the Midwest is about eight robots per farm. Um, and the largest in the U.S. is 32 robots. Uh, that's home, Homestead Dairy in, in Indiana. They have 32 now. And we have some other farms in the Northeast with, uh, no, about 20 robots per farm. Yeah, um, I think there's one nearby us. All right. So that's kind of adding up to the number of units we have. I know the largest is the one in Chile with, I think, I believe 40 or 42. Um, so it's, it's growing, but the majority of robots are still in Europe and followed by Canada. And I think now we might be third, actually, when you think about the number of units uh, after Europe. You know, Europe, Canada, U.S. Um, you have some units in Australia, um, um, not as many, but we also have rotary parlors in Australia by the Laval. Um, a few units in South America. I actually visited the first robot in South America, in Latin America, when I was in Brazil. I think it was about two or three years ago. I was in, in Brazil, actually, it was the first robot. It was, at, I believe, it was at De Laval. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's growing all over, I think, but most of it in Europe, yes. Thank you. Um, do you have a, an opinion on what you consider the optimum number of cows per robot or a range? Yeah, our average uh, is being approximately 58 cows. That's kind of average. 
but we have a range of people that are still, you know, growing in, you know, expanding the system that started maybe at 40, 45, up to maybe 70, 75. Uh, the guided flow systems sometimes have uh, tended to have a little more cows per robot than the free flow systems. Uh, so we tend to use that 60 as a number, like a target. Uh, again, with limited research, I think more research should be done looking at different numbers and see at what point we're going to compromise the number of visits or we're going to have not, if, you know, not enough downtime for the robot, uh, things like that. Um, so we tend to kind of use that number of 60, 65 as kind of a target being the optimum. So we don't compromise, again, the production or the number of visits, et cetera. Um, it's a number that everybody kind of tends to use um, per, for robot boxes. Okay, excellent. I think, uh, so Marka, I think that gives us a, a good roundup of this morning. Okay. Okay. I, again, want to thank the people that joined us. And anybody who sort of came in part, part of the way through, don't worry, we're running it again at 6 o'clock, or you'll be able to catch the part that you missed in the beginning um, through the recording. And I'm also hoping that doing it in this way is going to make it so that I'm able to get the recordings up much more quickly. Um, Anybody who joined us for the entire thing, thank you for bearing with me. I learned a lot of things this morning, and <laughs> we will be able to do a much better job in the future. Thanks, um, Marianne. I think it did great. It's just the first time we try something new as always. You know, we're learning. <laughs> yes, yes. And anybody who did listen, if you have any feedback for how this can be improved, because I think this is how we're doing it going forward, um, go ahead and shoot that off to me, because I will take it into advisement, and I will do what I can. So once again, thank you all. Um, we will be back again tonight at 6 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time with, as you can see, questions starting right around 7.15 or so. Marcia, thank you. Thank you, Maria. I will talk to you tonight. Yes, you talk to you later. Yep, thank thanks, you. everybody. <laughs> Have a Bye. good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. For any of you listening to this as a recorded version or as a podcast, I apologize. We do not have the afternoon questions. The sound quality was very poor on production, so we opted to leave them off. Thank you for listening. <laughs>